podcast is brought to you by QT Faithful to your monthly hymnal devotional, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantino-verse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show the owner of Scarefly Records, co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast, it's Mr. Sean Wheeler. Together, we will be giving a thorough examination of the tracks that reside on the second half of Tarantino's fourth film, his Kung Fu Samurai Western revenge flick, the Kill Bill Volume 2 soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Wheeler, and may Tarantino be with you always. Amen. A very nice, brief, subtle, hey man, I love it. I mean, this is basically Sean Wheeler month. <laughs> you were just on, even though we haven't recorded yet, but you were, to the listener, you were just on the Under the Influence for Kill Bill Volume 2 with Mr. Smith. Prior to that, you are on the Kill Bill Volume 1 Hymnal Devotional, number six. So this is Sean Wheeler fucking month in July. It's not just Kill Bill month, months, because there are two, but it's Sean Wheeler is taking over the podcast. So You know, like, I study this shit, so it's just... And I never get a chance to talk about Kill Bill with anybody because most of the people I know don't like the movie. Uh, then you don't know the right people. I, I know. Who does like, like Kill was, Bill? All the other movies I can... Film. Almost every film in the Tarantino-verse, I can hear why people don't like. But Kill Bill is that universal film where it's just sit down and you enjoy the fucking hell out of the film. Yeah. Uh, if you don't like it, so, then but, fuck those people. They don't even need them. Well, I think more of it is the people I know will sit down and discuss... Pulp Fiction or you know, even Death Proof, but they won't like this movie just seems like so cut and dry to people that they don't want to discuss it as much. So this may be his most influenced movies yeah. ever. It's, He's it's cherry picking for so much stuff. My favorite Tarantino movie, probably second favorite film of all time behind The Shining, which I believe is also your favorite film of all One time. One of my favorites of all time. Yes. Yes. So, yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get into Shining. We'll, um, it, you know, maybe when the Church of Tarantino <laughs> ends. It'll be a church of... I, I told you my plans. Church of Kubrick. I, I'm, Maybe a I'm church of Kubrick. I don't know. Ooh. We'll see. I, I don't know. <laughs> anyways. Anyways. Anything new on your Splatterhouse podcast or in the world of the Scareflare Records? Anything new coming out? I've just been kind of hiding up in the hills and choking my chicken lately, to be honest with you. You're not doing the, the David Carradine, though, right? No, okay, no. Good. Wait, wait, wait. Cheech and Chong <laughs> hiding up in the hills. Um, no, I'm getting ready to move across the country and haven't been really doing a whole lot. Like Scarefloor kind of got put on hold here where we're just, I don't want any, I have four new records coming in and I don't want to have to move them across the country with me. So I'll be dropping four that are done in press as soon as I move, like they'll show up. And then, so yeah, just, I, I don't have anything new. Like I've been working on a few things. And then for the Splatterhouse, we just did an episode on Martin, the George Romero classic that um, never, ever gets talked about, but it just had a new 4K come out. And then we're going to be doing the Devil's Rejects next month because I get to pick and, uh, you know, just something 
Ryan's crazy. You guys will get to meet Ryan. I think he's going to be on your death proof episode. He will. He'll technically be. Yeah, he's three weeks out from listening to this. When people yeah, he's like this. blood yep. and guts, and I'm just like, can we watch the Lost Boys or something? You know, and he's just <laughs> like, no, I need to watch Zombie and Maniac for the 85th time. So. <laughs> now, of the film, because this is broken into, I'm I am a purist. I'm going to be honest with you. However, I'm also a whore. So let me explain. I'm a purist. And this is his fourth film, and it was broken into. And I think in our discussion here, we'll kind of examine that this. CD, this album, really highlights the fact this movie was originally intended to be one whole thing. That being said, as the whore I am, I've definitely leaned into being able to do special editions and special anniversary things, which I just did last month uh, for the Kill Bill Volume 1. I'll do the 20th next year for Kill Bill Volume 2. So I'm all about whoring myself out as this is two separate films. But the purist in me considers it one. This, if I'm not mistaken, this volume is your favorite of the two volumes. Am I correct? You actually enjoyed the Spaghetti Western version, or am I getting you and Steven confused? I don't really view them as two films anymore. I can't watch one without the other. Agreed. So, uh, But if you had to have me pick, like I, I like the feel of this one a little bit more than the first one. First one, I love the first movie. Don't get me wrong, but the two of them together, when I say it's like my second favorite film of all time, it's these two put together. So I don't know if that answers your did. question. No, it does. Not, I, I enjoy them both. I've had my Speaking of why I don't like them separated, but I understand why they got separated. I totally understand it. It makes makes sense. And whether Tarantino knew it or not, it's separating it, it fit perfectly because it does go from Eastern to Western. And yes, there are still bits of both in each of the volumes, but clearly the first volume is heavily Eastern with some Western influences in it. And the second one is a heavy Western with some Eastern influences in it. And the two of them just happen to separate perfectly, and they do feel like two different films. But I am hoping, since they've announced that there's going to be a 4K re-release of both Volume 1 and Volume 2, I'm hoping he'll get his head out of his ass and release the whole fucking bloody fair. Why are we fucking about? Why are I we just, fucking I around? I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Like, I just think, Why not? I have this feeling that it's probably licensing. I mean, it's so much easier to sit down and license this film that's already been released in the U.S. in this format. So the first song we're going to talk about on here that you're going to play your little music and stuff, I already noticed a change in the last month to the film for my streaming service that's changed hmm. since that was announced. Interesting. So there's a there's a difference in the film when you stream it right now than when if you go pull out your DVD or Blu-ray. So they're already changing things about the film since Lionsgate got it. So it's I, it's going to be 100% licensing. It's going to it's it's going to take new licensing for that version of the film. It's like what just happened with Martin where there's always been this hour and a half long version and Romero had a black and white version that's like 2 hours and 30 minutes somebody just found it in their attic and everybody went apeshit for it thinking that they were going to release this big lost Romero film and they can't because the person that has it doesn't own the rights to show it to anybody he had to sell it off and then someone's gonna have to work out a deal yeah licensing is fucked up right now in this country so (laughs) maybe AI will be fixing that soon anywho let's jump into volume fucking two and now it's time to reach under your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack from Kill Bill vibe two. This soundtrack was released on April 13, 2004 by Maverick Records. It features 15 tracks from various artists and has a running time of 46 minutes and 12 seconds. This album was produced by the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan and scored by director Robert Rodriguez. The soundtrack has been certified gold in France and Hungary and has sold over 3,000 copies worldwide, while peaking at number two on Billboard's soundtracks chart. The first track off of volume two. And this whole entire album is interesting. Of the 12 tracks that are actual music tracks of the 15 on here, three of them 
are from the fucking end credits. We get all three songs from the end credits on this album. And the first one is Goodnight Moon by Shivari. This is a song by the American alt-rock band Shivari, and is the seventh track on their 1999 debut album, I Ought to Give You a Shot in the Head for Making Me Live in This Dump, and was released as the band's debut single. The song was a top 30 hit in France and peaked at number one in Italy. Now this song is the second song to play during the end credits and is heard over the black and white portion of them. I must also note it is also brilliantly covered by our friend of the podcast, Miss Sin Electric, on her 2022 EP entitled My Crazy 88. I think she does a fantastic job of covering this song. Now, this song and the other two that we're going to talk about as they come up makes this soundtrack very disjointed, in my opinion, and is the one telltale sign that this film was originally designed to be one film it was not designed to break up into two you know because i know it was late in the game when they decided to break this into two because i remember reading an article where he had to go tell sally menke after they just literally picture locked this that guess what we've now got to break this into two and then he had to go and refilm some stuff he had to film that whole opening that we get which is one of the very first tracks under where she's doing the whole roaring rampage of revenge little speech over the uh, uh rear projection the black and white rear projection and she's pretending to drive since she can't drive anymore because prior to that she almost died in a car accident that <laughs> the Weinsteins wanted to cover up. The Weinsteins covering something up? Stop. 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 Crazy. So we've got three of them. There's a lot of songs that we're going to get to at the end where are not included that seem to be much better options than some of the songs that we're going to talk about in here. And when you think about the first soundtrack, Volume 1, it's fantastic. It's amazing. I think Volume 2 got up to number 2 on the uh, Billboard chart. Well, number 1 actually went to number 1. I think number 2 got to number 2 because it was basically riding the coattails of people thought it was going to be as good as number one. And it just it just isn't. And I'm not trying to be mean, but it's very disjointed. When you get the whole thing together, when you put this all of them together, it's a much better flowing sounding soundtrack when yeah. everything's together. But, I mean, there's a lot of songs in here that you're just kind of like, how did that not make it in there? And as you heard, well, you don't hear, but our folks heard it. Uh, Robert Rodriguez was the person who actually was got paid a dollar to score this for Tarantino. And a lot of his original stuff doesn't even make it in, which doesn't make sense. None of it is. Well, None the only thing is his is Chingon. He's in Chingon. That's oh, but yeah, that's it. Everything else is like I mean, which is bizarre, you know, because in the first one, you know, Rizza gets a couple things in, and even there's a hidden track we'll talk about that Rizza got on here, and that makes it so it's a very disjointed, feels like really quickly thrown together, didn't have a lot of more money or time or whatever it was to to kind of get the stuff in that they wanted to, maybe. But for me, that's the the telltale sign. But the song Good Night Moon is a great fucking song. It does have a really great credits, I mean, sequences. So I mean the three songs are <laughs> Sadly, I think, or at least two out of the three, are two of the best on the soundtrack when you kind of look at them yeah. comparatively. How do you feel about Goodnight Moon? And uh, should we talk about it? Or should we just leave it for the episode that we haven't recorded yet, but that we probably recorded? Or do we want to wait for this for the 20th anniversary special where we talk about the credits? Do you want to save that for another year? A little, a little, does Bill know he's dead? Does Bill know the whole, do you want to do that kind of thing? That's not what I noticed. There's something else I noticed that I was messaging you about. So the song, I feel like he heard it, he liked it, he licensed it. It feels completely out of place in the credits. And with the credits now gone, it makes it even worse. It feels like he owed somebody a favor to throw this in because the band was unknown, mm-hmm. like he just had heard the song. But what I was talking about, the change that they did to the film, if you go after the Shingon yep. track, and then the Goodnight Moon starts, there used to be credits while she was driving that would say, you know, like, Lucy Liu is this, and then the name yeah. would cross out. 
if you watch it right now and go and stream it, those credits are gone. Hmm. Took them out of the film. So like the question mark over L Driver is now gone. The David Carradine that doesn't get crossed out, making you wonder maybe he made it that it, they were actually playing around and stuff. That's all gone. So now it's just like a, a it's a music video of her driving to the chivalry song interesting that's what i was messaging yeah. you about interesting. I, don't, I don't think you knew what i meant yeah if you go stream it right now there's no credits my brother pulled up the dvd and he was like holy shit you're right and i was like i was just watching it i'm like where's hmm. the credits yeah so there's like this is shang on and then a music video of her driving around and then it goes into the um the other one at the end how interesting is it that in the order we have one of the end credits opening up the soundtrack that's a very strange thing to do yeah Especially like for me, like I when you deal with this stuff, everybody always wants it in order yeah. that it comes in the film, so that when they listen to well, it, even in his other ones, most of them are in order. They they pretty much go in a similar a flow. Little bit. There's a little bit of like there's Jackie a couple, but Brown rarely was really is the, chopped around too a little bit. But. Yeah, but the end credits are never in the beginning. No. It's never. Usually, we have the opening track song, and then he'll close with the closing track song, and in the middle, maybe he'll fluctuate. But it's rarely. This is. I mean, you want to talk about nonlinear? This CD yeah. or album is completely it's, it's, nonlinear. Like I said, like did did he owe somebody a favor where there's like, can you put it on first so when people listen to it, that's the first thing they hear? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. I it's one of my least favorite songs on the whole thing. I just I've never really liked the song, and I felt like it was. I went through the lyrics and everything, trying to find where it might connect to the film, and. I just I've never been able to I've never been able to connect with this track as part of the soundtrack. I know a lot of people like it. I just don't. Well, the other part is when it opens, obviously the very first track is actually an audio track and it's her doing her whole she's on a rolling rampage of revenge, yada yada yada. You would think then next song, because normally when they do that, up to this point, whenever he's had a track with dialogue, next thing happens is the song that you know happens either in that sequence and this doesn't. That song is like song number nine or twelve on the actual album. It falls way yep. down on the song that actually opens up the film. So very interesting way to start this album right out the gate with Goodnight Moon as the second of our three end credit songs that will make this album yeah. the song does work really well with the black and white stuff the way the the instrumental stuff that's going on Agreed. and everything but i just never really been a fan of the song i own a seven inch single of it that's really really rare i got like a promotional one of it a while back and i've listened to it once it's just like you know like I, the song it's not my favorite song on the whole thing so the second song is our first from ennio morricone and it is il tramanto il tramanto aka the sundown is a scored piece of music from the Spaghetti Western classic, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The soundtrack was on the Billboard charts for more than a year, reaching number 10 on the Black Album chart and number 4 on the Pop chart. This beautiful song plays as the bride wanders out of the chapel and finds Bill sitting on the bench playing his flute. Ironically enough, playing it to this tune. The disappointment when I listened to it today is I was for certain in my head that Bill's flute was playing to it and it wasn't. Which then made me think, wow. Tarantino knew he was going to use that song for that scene, knew it immediately, must have played it at some point on set for David Carradine. David Carradine found the right note, and they had the, maybe maybe they were even slowly, you know, lightly playing it in the background for him so he can keep up with it, but it was beautiful. It works so well with his little flute added into this song, and it's that moment, because this is the introduction of Bill. Like, we actually are going to see Bill for the first time, and it's all in the performance of Miss... Uma Thurman, as she's walking out, we can see in her face, she knows. We don't know yet, but she knows by the flute that it's Bill. And we're then told that later when he does the Pi May speech and he plays his flute. That's when we're told. 
But she knows by the flute playing that he puts over this song that it's Bill. She knows immediately. We just know she's going up to see him. And there he fucking is. And I mean, is there a more disarming scene than an older gentleman sitting on a bench playing this long flute in Texas? And you go, oh, he can't be that tough, that bad. You know what I mean? Like, it really disarms you. You, you think, oh, look at this look at this little cupcake. He's easy. You, know? I just love some of the introductions we get from all of these characters. He's a master at it, but... Bills is, we've been built up the whole time. You know, the first time we see him, he's jamming his Hanzo sword, opening it up and putting it back in, but we don't see him. Then he's got his hands almost threateningly around Sophie Fatale's neck when she's telling him. And then we finally get to see him. And here he is, this gentle middle-aged man playing a flute. Boy, were we were you wrong? But this music sets you up to go, oh, shit. Like, here comes the and devil. His, the casting of him is absolutely perfect. We always talk about how mm-hmm. great Tarantino is at casting. And I honestly, like after watching these films to prepare for this, I can't see anyone else ever playing him. I mean, fuck the Warren Beatty. No fucking no, no. way. Like, I can't imagine anybody else playing this part ever. If they ever remade this, they'll never be able to no. cast it as good as him. So it's better than the Forster. It's better than the um, John Travolta. I, I'm sorry, but it is. You might be right. You might be 100% right. He blends into how, his role. How, like the way he talks and the way he moves and everything. and Everything. Yeah. And... The flute playing, I mean, just that little thing, you know, as she's walking out there and the music is so beautiful the way it starts off and stuff and it adds so much emotion to the scene. It's like, it's almost sweet. And then it's just absolutely starts to fall apart at the end with that repeated guitar line and it like mimics their relationship. It just falls apart. So, and it, that repeated guitar is, it's like her mindset of seeing Bill like complete, like, oh no, what's he going to do? Because you don't know what he's going to do, you know? And then he just, oh, hey. (laughs) So, but it's also a little giddiness in it too. Like she's, she's worried because she knows that, oh fuck, he thinks I'm dead. But she also hasn't seen him since she's found out she was pregnant. Like there's a giddiness of, of seeing him again. Like you can tell in that moment, she still really loves Bill. Bill, and she's just marrying this poor guy, Plimpton. Yeah, I'm sure he's a great guy. He's like Bill says, I'm sure she, you know, has found a, a nice kindred fucking spirit. In jerk. Him. But she's not in <laughs> love. He's fucking a fucking jerk. jerk. She's not in love with him as much as she is with Bill, and you can just see it in in their tenderness and yeah. their moments. And the chemistry between the two of them in this. And then, like when I saw it in theaters, I've listened to and seen the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly probably a hundred times in my life. I've listened to the soundtrack even more and. It's the song that's used to introduce the Lee Van Cleef character in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And he's just a bad motherfucker, and he does just so much shit to people in that movie. And so you hear that, and that's how he's introducing Bill, and then it's complete against, you know, everything that, you know, you're expecting with Bill. Because, like you said, you hear his voice, and he decides, you know, like, we're not going to kill her. And then, you know, there's all the stuff that he does in the first film, it's just, mm-hmm. there's... He, he's so perfect in this and the music that's picked to, to be laid over it. And there's a couple other ones too that I noticed while we we're, while I was going through it that are just great. While I was watching this time, I don't know if you've ever covered it on the podcast. What is his signal for these guys to come in and start shooting up the chapel? Because I was watching it and like he never turns around. So they're just going to come in. Like, what if she just said, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go. Well, I think there was a moment and maybe the signal without us seeing it is when he says to her, if he's the man you want to stand by, then go stand by him. If she has not stood by him and walked out and just basically the runaway bride type thing and walked out with Bill, none of those people would have died. She wouldn't have died. He basically, as good old Bud says later, knowing Buffalo Bill like she buffaloed Bill. 
she was his favorite. And this is why some of these people we've talked about in, in the Vine 1, and you and I will talk about it with Steve when we get to Vine 2 because we're recording this ahead of time. So people are going to be like, these motherfuckers are talking about this. We're not littering this, people. She is everything to Bill. He, She can do no wrong in his eyes. She's the greatest. And she may very well be the greatest, as we learn throughout these, these two films put together. But he would have walked out with her right then and there, and that would have been it. And whether they protested or not, doesn't matter. You think about this. Five people were feared of by one man. That's how, I mean, we never really get to see how bad Bill is. I mean, you know, they, there's a cut scene that you can see on the deleted scene, which is pretty cool. But Bill is not to be trifled with. He got a guy to come out of fucking retirement from making swords to make him a sword. Like, that is how bad. The only person that Bill's afraid of Pime. is Pai there's yep. no one else he's afraid of. That's why I always said Paime is the baddest motherfucker in all the Tarantinoverse. There's well, no one I even close. I don't know if he's afraid of him. He just got his ass kicked. Paime's sitting there <laughs> not even breathing, and Bill comes down look like he just got in a fight with Wolverine, yeah. and he's like, it's just a friendly contest. <laughs> friendly contest, my ass. And the thing everyone forgets is in one of these dialogue tracks, he talks about like this... The, the story of Pai Mei happens in like one double out three. So this motherfucker is over a thousand years old when we meet him in the and lore of Pai Mei. He gets tricked by a one-eyed blonde. He does. <laughs> he does get, he gets poisoned. But that's the only way we're going to kill him is poisoning him. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're not killing no. him any other way. But yeah, so the only person Bill fears is Pai Mei and everyone else fears Bill. Miserable so. old fool. <laughs> Yes, like the it's like the hardest harshest burn that she could come up with. <laughs> That'll lead us to track number three. Can't hardly stand it by Charlie Feathers. Charlie Feathers is an American rockabilly artist of the 1950s. This song was released as a single in 1956 and was featured in the video game Grand Theft Auto V, as well as in the 2013 film Only Lovers Left Alive. This song is playing in the background as the bride awakens to find herself tied up in the back of Bud's pickup truck after being gentled down a bit by some rock salt to the breasts. Again, this is one of those background tracks that live with or not live with it doesn't matter it's it just it's there what happens in the scene is so much more important like this song only plays for like a few seconds before he looks over and he's like wakey wakey eggs and bakey drags her ass off and she falls down and then the little midget wants to get out of the fucking thing and they start talking shit about her and isn't she the cutest piece of blonde pussy you've ever seen and he's like i've seen better <laughs> fucking love that well, it, it shows that like bud is also <laughs> attracted to her as well and i mean that's that's oh, yeah. the, the thing mm-hmm. about it and like I wonder because if you read the lyrics of the song and stuff it's about a girl getting dumped or a song about it someone getting dumped and then the girl's running all around town with other guys and it's like is this the story of Bud or is it the story of Bill because you never find out the backstory or like how they met yeah. the bride you know like I don't know the more I watch it I think the bride was like a language student or something that just happened to have very athletic because she speaks all those fucking languages well I mean if we go back to Blue Ball Central uh, <laughs> we were supposed to get an anime series about uh, all of this stuff yeah. all of the uh, origins and stuff and we never did is that we what you're calling a file did. now for anything Jesus Christ <laughs> oh there's a lot there's a lot there's so much Anywho, this Charlie Feather song plays, it's one of those ones that disappear. It's perfectly fine. I, it's not one of my favorites. I usually skip it when it's on the soundtrack. It's not one of those, like, hey, that's a great song. It just happens to be something in the background. Kind of informs us, like you said, it has a little tie-in if you look into the lyrics, but it also informs us uh, that we're in Texas, and this is the kind of music that a short guy who, <laughs> who professionally digs holes, apparently, or digs up bodies. Get me out of this <laughs> hole. Get me out of this goddamn yeah, hole. The song does kind of give it, um, because he's got he starts messing around with the little the aspect ratios of all the the shots and stuff he's doing to combine them, and it goes back to that De Palma feel that we yeah. I think we talked about on the last yep. one where and that's it kind of gives that G, that Giallo 
you know, the Palma feel to it a little bit. So I don't hate the song. I like the other Charlie Feather song a hell of a lot better. Oh, God, yes. This one's just the really one that, from the first one. The one that introduces Earl Oh, McGraw. yeah. His, his yes. theme song. Yeah. So. Much better song. Yeah, absolutely. That takes us to song number four, To Amira by Lowell Emanuel. Lowell Emanuel was a Gitano musical duo formed by Dolores Montoya Rodriguez and Manuel Molino Jimenez. Together they composed and performed innovative flamenco music between 1972 and 1993. Tu Amira is a track off their 1975 debut album entitled El Origen de Una Lienda. This song is playing as the bride drives to and arrives as Esteban Viejo's little Horshack on the side of the road. Um, the Man of Leisure, played by the great Michael Parks. I don't know who Lowell Emanuel is, but they are belting this fucking, what sounds like almost like this flamingo, Spanish, almost like a song you hear in like a church, right? Like it feels like some kind of operatic yeah. church song. I don't know who it is, but they are belting it out. They just, I mean, they're killing this freaking song. When you watch it in the film, it plays the right amount of time and feels good. When you listen to the soundtrack, it does get a little yeah. bit long. It does feel a little long. You're like, okay, they they cut it off the right. Sally was like, we got to cut it here in this in the soundtrack on the on the film. So it's, it's only there for one reason to let you know that the bride has arrived in Mexico. Because what song? Yeah, oh, what song absolutely. sets the yes. mood better for her going to Mexico than this? It's a catchy freaking song. It really is. But like I said, once whatever this kid's singing about, and I should have looked at the lyrics, but I didn't. Whatever this kid's singing about, and it sounds like a kid. He's probably an adult, but he is killing this fucking yeah. song. He's very emotional about it, and it works beautifully. I mean, yes, it, what else would you play? Yeah. And it's a very authentic Mexican song, too, which is what I like. They, they didn't go and grab Tito and the Tarantula, which I wouldn't have hated. But that would have felt a little bit too on the nose. This one just is pulled out of left field, and you're like, holy yeah, shit. Yeah, I want to just, it sets the scene for it. The, the guitar stuff on it is really cool. It really, but yeah, and she goes driving through. On, there's that shot of the side of the car, and it's like, I'm sitting there watching it the other day, and I was like, does anybody fucking drive slow in any of his movies? Because everyone is just hauling ass all the time. <laughs> well, this is also the scene that, in reality, she hurts herself. That's the scene. Is she, and you can see it. Where she, that, that bouncing part where you see it, almost like she's going out her of control. Left, they use that part, and she her, actually, her car left the a few minutes later, crashes. Yep. Yeah. So an interesting moment. But, I mean, it's a great little intro, not just to we get to learn that we're now in obviously Mexico, but then we get introduced to, you know, Esteban Viejo and Michael Parks and man, he was so good in that as Esteban. He's one of my favorite parts of this, of this movie with that, because of that. I mean, he is so flawless and in it, the way that he delivers the lines and everything in that little, the, the thing he does <laughs> with the kiss after my favorite. And then she, my and favorite then she comes over and her face is just Fucked up, and you can. Well, he just said, I would have been much nicer to you. I would have just yeah. cut your face. And then you're like, okay. And then all of a sudden he calls her over, and you're like, oh shit, he cut this. But if you face. watch, like, there's, like, oh, there's a bride reaction probably about five seconds before we even see the face. And that's like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, what is she seeing? Oh, oh, wow. Okay, he's not full of shit. Yeah. So. And it's interesting. <laughs> I know we're sidetracking. She's the only white girl in the place, too. In a blonde. Or if that leads to some of that white sass. <laughs> mm -hmm. American whites. I'm just saying. Every blonde white sass led to some problems. Well, you don't know, like, <laughs> like, how did Bill get hooked up to go get trained by Pai Mei? Did Esteban set that up? Maybe Esteban's a bad motherfucker, and we just don't know it. Oh, well, he ran the Akuna mm -hmm. boys. So, I mean, there's Bill collected male figures, as they say, but he collects, seems like some bad ones. It seems like he collected some good ones to start with because obviously he went on to Hattori, but then did he go from Hattori to, you know, Paime? Like, I'm thinking it's Paime was the final push. Paime showed him how to be brutal. When he's got her arms, do you wish Tain power like this? 
That's a power yeah. trip. You know what I mean? That's not a good master. He wants to teach you how to punch through someone's chest two inches in front of you and grab their heart. That's a dude who clearly is not had the best. He's not like, hey, want to go, go outside and play catch some? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but but then you hear that Esteban was taken built to movies at a young age. So it's just this this arc of father figures that you know. It looks like each one yeah. was more fucked up than the one before it. Well, actually, Hanzo, you don't really know. Like, he could. Yeah, we yeah have no you idea. don't know. Like, you just know that. He may have changed his ways because yeah, of Yeah, you just know that he does not like Bill and yeah. is willing to break a sacred oath to. That he made because of Bill. You know what I mean? Like, that, that's basically, I mean, whatever, that's subtext. Whether everyone knows it or not, Hanzo stopped making swords because of for Bill. people because of and Bill. What did Bill. What did Bill do that was so bad with one of his swords? That he was like, you know, that's I don't it. Know, that's not, Tarantino in his anime. I'm, I'm done. I'm gonna make sushi in the fucking city known for the worst sushi in the world. <laughs> <laughs> that leads to song number five, which would be "Summertime Killer" from Louis Bakalov. Louis Bakalov is an Argentine-born film composer who wrote this theme song as a part of the score he did for the 1972 crime film of the same name. This is the part of the soundtrack in the next couple, which really picks up. It really is. It's probably part of the best part of the soundtrack because, like I said earlier, it's very disjointed. Now, this song is playing as the bride arrives at Bill's hacienda and stops abruptly when she sees her daughter, Bibi, is alive, which they alluded to in volume one, which if they didn't do it, if they did a whole bloody affair like they should have, you'd have all... Saw right then and there, holy shit, her daughter isn't dead. Takes on a whole new outlook of what this movie just became. I love this song. This is perfect. Yep. I love that he's taking it on as the theme song for his podcast. The When you hear the kill the Bacalov at the beginning of every one of them, it's this. So yeah, I love that. Um, I, the piece of music, uh, the way it's used, it, it adds so much mystery and like urgency to her drive because along with her, you don't really know what you're getting into yet. She's going into the lion's den. You know, basically. And when she does see her daughter, the, the way the music kind of stops in there. I don't know. I don't remember what piece of music it is that plays in there. But there's there's another piece in there. And, like, the way she's the, the switch flips on her from killer to mommy again. And she does that a couple times during the during it that, like, it just shows her depth and everything. And it's it really sucks oh, yes. watching this now, knowing that she didn't do a lot of film afterwards because she had gotten so hurt in that car accident yeah i mean i haven't seen her i can't remember I, I saw her in a lars von trier movie with matt dillon playing a serial killer and she's a hitch she picks him up as a hitchhiker and he kills her in like two minutes of the movie she was a superhero my, my, my oh, superhero maybe, ex-girlfriend yeah, or whatever she was in that after that I don't remember. however she was probably also bringing up her young daughter because her and then ethan hawk you know they separated shortly after that you know i mean what it, an idiot right <laughs> Black phone aside, you idiot. Brooklyn's finest aside. <laughs> but an unknown thing about that this song reminds me of is when I read the original screenplay before I went to Iraq, there's a moment in the film where she's on the road to Selena to see him, and her and Bill actually pass on the road. Bill knows it's her, so it's one of those things where I don't remember if it was Esteban who let him know she was coming, because I do, I mean, Bill knows she's coming. When she shows up, he he knows she's there. Well, he passes by her, and he doesn't have BB with her. He actually takes a shot at her. As they drive by in high speed, he takes a shot at her. And I remember reading that, and she, and he misses. And I forget what happens then, but that's the only thing I remember. There are two things on the script that didn't make I remember, and it's uh, the Yuki, um, who was Gogo's sister. That There's a scene there that gets cut oh, out, and nuts. it just gets combined. And then there's the scene where he actually takes a shot at her before she gets to his house. So, But Summertime Killer, great track. We talked about it on the Kill Bill Volume 1 under the influence where some of the music that you got that was surprisingly out of place in both Lady Snowblood and in 
the dollhouse seriously informs that moment and also informs the moment where we have the House of Blueleys end fight. So music that you don't expect to happen in these moments come out of nowhere. And, you know, instead of having like a traditional, maybe a, a Hispanic song, Mexican song, that doesn't play. We got this really cool song from Louis Bakalov. And instead of having some kind of maybe oriental themed song where we're going to fight, we end up getting a kick ass, again, like Flamingo song with, uh, you know, don't let me be misunderstood. Yeah. And I tracked, I have this one on vinyl, like the whole thing. It got re-released probably like four or five years ago. It is some jamming shit. So if you like this song, mm-hmm. go find the rest of it. You can't stream it. I don't think, I don't think it's available to stream the full album or it wasn't last time I looked, but this song is, but the rest of it is some really cool stuff. Um, Bakalov, you know, is a really good composer. So that'll lead us to song six and the chase from Alan Reeves, Phil Steele and Philip Brigham. Julie's father, Francis Dreyfus, who owns Dreyfus Records, owns a number of film scores, including The Road to Selena, which this song originally appears on. The soundtrack was re-released by Dreyfus Records in 2003. This song plays as that diabolical bitch, L Driver, drives to Bud's trailer. Now, this song was suggested to Mr. Tarantino by Sophie Fatel herself, Miss Julie Dreyfus. Also, she introduced to him The Sunny Road to Selena, which plays as the bride walks through the desert to Bud's trailer, which does not make the soundtrack, which we'll talk about at the end here. I love The Chase. The Chase is fucking perfect. This is another one. It kicks in just right. It's the imagery, her and that Pontiac Firebird, the T-top, the way she looks so badass, just driving fast in the desert. It's a fucking kick-ass fucking tune. And it's a short tune, about like a minute and a half, whatever it is, on the the length of the soundtrack, but fucking kicks ass. And I fucking love it. I'm so glad Miss Julie Dreyfus was the one who fucking introduced it to him so we get this awesome song. And it really works as a a new intro to to Elle because, you know, the first time we see her, it's the whistling song. And now... Here she is in a completely different mindset, so it kind of changes up our appreciation and opinion of her. Yeah, I found the same stuff you did, like the Julie Dreyfus. Um, her dad is a big music publisher, and this had come out on CD, and she listened to it and really liked it. So it hasn't been released on vinyl for like a long time. I do have a copy. The rest of it is just, obviously he used the other track from the movie, like you were talking about the Road to Selena, which is some jamming shit. But this one, I actually did. I found the scene from the movie that it was in, and it's the, used in the exact same way. There's a car driving across the desert at a high speed it's a very cool track i don't think that eastbound and down would have worked with the you know the banded car through here <laughs> it wouldn't have worked eastbound yeah, well, as l drivers going Watch to, yep. run. <laughs> yeah, just, i mean eastbound and down is completely tied to smoking oh, yeah. the bandit. like you just can't it, yeah, it can't be used for anything else unless it's a show eastbound and down like you just cannot take it anywhere yeah. with this thing with all of these tracks being out of they're kind of all over the place they did credit the people that wrote them by name instead of like like this one is actually the, the band is called clinic uh, on the soundtrack and yeah. everything but for some reason they just you know it's the same thing with the seven note yeah. from the last one that we talked mm-hmm. about it's you know like they he just did one of them but all three people wrote it i don't understand what you know what was going on with some of the stuff from it but it is what it is well it's like street life on jackie brown i'm trying to think of the actual uh, original yeah. band uh, the woman brandy what's her name there she gets credited because she re-recorded it for uh sharky's machine so that's the one they used but she actually sang it with another band she was the singer on it but then she re-recorded it and they used that version for the jackie brown soundtrack so it's all over the place when they give these credits and how people want to get yeah, their credits the, so. if you look at the credits on volume two the anything with because i think he used two tracks from navajo joe yes and quentin um credited it as the working title for the film instead of actually as Navajo Joe in the credits. So it's just, I think it's kind of up to him, but he gets to do whatever the fuck he wants and let him. <laughs> Almost everything he wants. I to tell people everything. <laughs> <Blue> ball. <laughs> oh, that'll rush us to track number seven, La Arena from, once again, Ennio Morricone. 
This song comes from the score Ennio composed to the 1968 Zapatista western Il Mercenario, or The Mercenary. The film is directed by Sergio Corbucci, the real-life director who directed the fake Rick Dalton film Nebraska Jim, and stars Franco Nero, the original Django. This song is heard as the bride says to the coffin, All right, Pai Mei, here I come, and she punches through the coffin, climbs somehow out of the dirt, and escapes through the grave of Paul Scholes to get back into reality. This is that moment. It's a very cool championing Majestic. song. Like, yeah, it almost is like, it's like a Rocky tune. It's like, you, you're like, oh, let's go. Like, Rocky's about to fight, and she's like, I'm climbing out. So, it's awesome. I mean, if you can't get amped up, every time I hear it, I'm like, I gotta punch through wood now. <laughs> you know, I gotta punch through a coffin or something. It's a very, very cool and satisfying song, and I love it. Like I said, those three songs in a row, from summertime to here, they're just really moving. They're really good, and they have great moments attached to them from the actual film that... Kind of, you know, bring you back, make you resonate, and think back on some cool moments. So, Ennio Morricone, like, as much as he had a problem with Tarantino for a while, it's very odd that he did. The man loved his stuff so much from his Scotty Westerns. I mean, he's all over the place. Like, he starts to make it through every film, and all the ones he uses are fantastic. And it just brings a new love and, uh, you know, admiration for how good of a composer Ennio Morricone was. It's just very weird that he would, for quite some time, have a bit of a wild hair up his ass towards Tarantino for how dare he use his soundtracks. But, dude, he's fucking, he's making you famous again. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. He almost had that, like, old man, get off my lawn feel to him. He's like, wait a minute. You're upset that I'm I'm exposing your music yeah, to people. Well, he, he said Whatever. for a few years that it was something lost in translation during an interview he gave that he really didn't you know have a problem with them using the music. He didn't understand where it was being used in the films and stuff, but that was it. They obviously made up and you know did the hateful eight together, and he won his only Oscar. So yeah. I mean, come on, yeah. I mean, yeah. come on. Neo from the grave. Well, come on, Morricone. Like I've been doing some writing and stuff about him with some of my records and everything. And like from sixty-five to like seventy, I think he did like twenty-five film scores in that time, including like Once That's Upon insane. a Time in the West, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Fistful of Dollars. He did this, The Great Silence. There's there's like a list of probably the ten best spaghetti westerns ever made, and he did the music for all of them. It's just unbelievable. And then in the middle of there, he did Battle of Angiers, which is also an amazing score. You know, there's so much stuff that he did in that time. And this piece, like, it's so good. And the way that it builds, the the guitar lead and then that, that trumpet solo right in the middle, like I said, like, it just adds, like, mm-hmm. this majestic feel to it. And I remember in the theater, I know that this wasn't, like, nominated for an award for sound design, but the nails being pounded into the wood and the burial in the theater when it gets all dark was yes. fucking amazing. And when I'm, like, it's yes. one of those things I just remember about seeing the movie the first time that remember as it was going on, it was just like, holy, holy shit, I've, I've never heard anything like it. It made you feel like you were actually being buried alive. Yeah. There. It's like the closest you can come without being buried alive to making it sound like you're being buried yeah, alive. Yeah, and then, I mean, you add in the whistling, which most times people are only whistling when they're bored. And she's not bored. She's mm-hmm. getting ready to fight for her life, you know. And yeah, it's just it's it adds so much depth and texture to that scene that he could have just had, you know, Rodriguez doing a little guitar thing under it, you know, and it wouldn't have. There's no power to it, but this music adds so much power above and beyond what it needs to. Even the original, when it's used in the mercenary, there's a huge shootout at the end um, between the three main characters and. They use this piece of music and it's a couple, like it's a little bit longer and they just goes around them and stuff as they get ready to have their Mexican standoff at the end. It's just like at the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but this isn't as good as The Ecstasy of Gold from the end of that, but it's damn close. Brings a question to bear. Did the Spaghetti Western create Ennio Morricone or did Ennio Morricone help create the Spaghetti They're Western? They're scissoring, dude. 
it's <laughs> that's all, that's all I can tell you. Like, it just all female. Well, no, the, so the first one all, that really my female audience is yeah. gone. <laughs> oh, there's, um, there's so much. Like, he did the, the obviously fistful of dollars. It's like a chicken and egg question, you know. It's a like chicken and the egg. No, Which came I mean, first? F- you know, I mean, do- is any more famous and popular because of the spaghetti western, or the spaghetti western is popular because of what any more cone brought to the it's music? A little bit of both, you know, like because like, it, you know. As we know, without music, like what makes but Tarantino he, he films the amazing there is the soundtracks. Yeah. Yeah. But there's horrible ones out there, and he didn't do the music for those. So it's like, did they not become great because of the music? But everything he does adds so much depth to it. I mean, watch watch yeah. the thing. I just watched it in 4K the other night. Yeah. Without that music, that brooding music, the film, I don't even know if Carpenter could have done as good as Morricone did for that film. And I love everything Carpenter does, and I'm probably going to get eggs thrown at me for saying that. But <laughs> no, only on the cheeky basses will we throw eggs in. Not here. Not here in the church. Your what? What, what is it? The hymnal, hymnal hour or something? Whatever the fuck. It's the hymnal devotional. No, the other the email. <laughs> what did he call it? The peanut gallery. The peanut gallery of idiots. Yes, that'll bring us to song number eight. A satisfied mind. The second track to make it into the Tarantino verse from Johnny Cash. This song was originally written by Joe Red Hayes and Jack Rhodes. Hayes claims the lyrics to the song are things he heard his mother say over the course of his childhood. It has been covered by Ella Fitzgerald, Joan Baez, The Birds, Glenn Campbell, Bob Dylan, Jeff Buckley, and of course, Johnny Cat. With his version being exclusive to the soundtrack until his death when it was posthumously released on the album American Six, Ain't No Grave, in 2010. Now this song is played on Bud's record player in his trailer while the bride stealthily prepares to ambush him from outside. Little does she know that he is prepared. Now, without <laughs> without picking holes in that scene, she could have easily killed him and been waiting inside as we easily know that he did not lock the door. But whatever, it made for a great scene, so I'm not going to be too picky about it. Makes for a great scene. We get all these great moments, so we won't be too picky. Again, this is one of those songs where, yeah, just sets the mood, sets the tone, because as it's playing... It works, you know, when he plays it and then we hear the dogs outside or the coyotes fighting outside and then he stops the record and we get we start to get the music turning from Ennio and then all of a sudden he puts it back on, but we're already ready to go. You know, it's just, it's again, it's one of those background track songs. It's just there to inform us that we know who Bud is, we know where he lives in a trailer. It's like a song that he might enjoy anyways, but we know it's Johnny Cash, but we're not listening to that song. We are waiting to see how this cat and mouse game is going to go, because we as the viewer know that Bud has a sense she's there. Yep. We just didn't know where she was until they, the camera pans down we see she's under the trailer. And so now we're wondering, okay, how's this going to work out? And we have no idea that when she opens the door, he's going to blast her in the jazz with rock salt. Not my favorite song I listened to again today. I like, eh, I've heard way better Johnny Cash songs. But again, it works for the scene. I, you just kind of know it's there, but you don't really, you don't pay it any mind or attention because it's not the it's not the focal point of what's about to happen in that moment. Your feelings on the Johnny Cash song? So I think there's a little bit more to it than what you're seeing. Obviously, he uses Johnny Cash twice, and Cash, I mean, he's famous for a reason. He built a legacy of writing, performing songs about violence, and Tarantino uses that legacy in his films. First, he used it in Jackie Brown as Ordell prepares himself to go and kill Jackie. And like Jackson says himself in Pulp Fiction, he's like, well, let's get into character. I think that he uses the music of Johnny Cash to get the killer's mindset and the film-going audience into the mindset that there's something that's going to go on. Um, he does the same thing in Kill Bill with Cash's song. You know, Tennessee Stud is obviously, a, I think it's a better song to, as well as than Satisfied Mind, but they're not really songs about Tales of Murder or the idea of what the artist represents for that scene where the let's get into character. It's, it's getting me, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, shit's going to go down. And it's not your normal, like, 
shit's gonna go down music if you know what i'm saying the song also if you listen to the lyrics it could be telling the story of bud bud you know he has this untold history of maybe he's better off on his own in his trailer because look what happens as soon as this lifestyle starts coming back he gets bit in the face by a fucking snake i also found a really cool piece that i didn't know but quentin tarantino wrote liner notes for a johnny cash album called love god and murder in the year 2000 and there's some kill bill tie-ins to it which um one of the things he wrote about it about johnny cash's music is when a man faces a rope or 99 years in a cage for the choices he's made when he tells the story of those choices he tells it not with bravado but with an overwhelming sense of regret so hmm. complete tie-in back to yeah. everything that happens yeah, after that absolutely. so i mean i took it as a tie-in i don't know about you but yeah no i mean i, I like exactly what you came up with sounds good to me it's just a background yeah. song well, the, and the scene, it, it, it seems like a background scene I in jackie scene. brown but as he, he puts that on and he's just putting the gloves on all slow and methodical and you know that Ordell's a ladies man. So, but you also know he's a fucking killer. So I think yeah. he's trying to get himself into the mood to go in and do what he has, what he thinks he has to do. And then she just, you know, she's fucking smarter than him and pushes a gun against his dick. So I don't know that's maybe me looking further into it than I need to. No, I like so, it. I think he's, I like he does that a lot on, on his soundtracks. He uses, you know, the legend of the music and, you know what? Oh, absolutely. Very few songs are unintentional. Yeah, it's just nothing is coincidental. Yeah. Nothing is by chance. Every song is picked specifically for a reason. It's not just like, well, that song will be good there. No, it is there for a reason. That's the difference between him and anybody else that works on his material. I mean, look 100%. at True Romance. You wouldn't have gotten Nymphomaniac or whatever the fuck it is in the middle of you know that. Listen, scene. that's Pat's favorite song, so don't besmirch <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'll lead us to another. Any Morricone song being a silhouette of doom. This song comes from the score to the 1966 spaghetti western Navajo Joe, starring Burt Reynolds and directed by Sergio Cabucci. Reynolds described the film as being so awful it's only shown in prisons and on planes because no one can get up and leave. Now, this song is playing twice in the film. This song is technically the opening credit song as the bride recaps us of what just happened in volume one. And then again, it plays as the bride and Elle prepare to actually cross Hansel's horns after they've just beaten the dog shit out of each other and destroyed what's left of Bud's shitty trailer anyways. And they're about to kill each other. And it's where B asks the uh, asks uh, L, you know, how'd she lose her eye? And then L tells her, and then L tells her that I killed your master and bitch, you ain't got a future. And away we go. And I snatch and beautiful, quick ending to an amazing scene. I love this. This is of the instrumental pieces. I think it's one of my favorites in this section of the film. I just love that piano part, that piano. And then the violins come in. It really is good. It's fucking the whole score is like that. It's really good. There's a lot of um, mariachi music mixed in. But as most spaghetti westerns, there is. Um, yeah, this totally, like, after you find out that Paime's dead and what she did and everything, it adds a lot of weight to that as the music plays. Because this is another piece that it's like, it shouldn't fit over this fight in a trailer, but it does. And even over the beginning when she's driving in, it fits there too. I mean, it fits so well, he used it twice. So mm-hmm. it's a very cool opening. Um, I love, and if you listen to the inst- the instruments and stuff used in it, it's got a very similar feel to The Hateful Eight with some of the main stuff. If you listen to yes. it side by side, it's almost like he's like, can you do something like you did on Silhouette of Doom in Navajo Joe? And very cool track. And the great thing in that moment, and we talked about this over a year ago, myself and Steve, when we did the Bible study for that fight scene, is the foreshadowing that she's going to snatch the eye is there. Once they talk about it, 
the close-ups are of eyes almost the entire time even today into the fight like it's there the whole time we should know we're worried about how they're gonna kill each other who's oh my gosh you can cut with their own sword and all of a sudden it's like nope bitch give me your eye <laughs> it was just a great moment but it's been set it was set up the entire time that they do that little tete-a-tete but you know as the viewer you don't see it the first time through which is the great thing about filmmaking it's why every film in my opinion if it's a good one needs multiple viewings so you can actually see all the yep. layers that have been set before you for you yeah. to find and I, I love that about that it's the only part of any of his movies that i've ever been squeamish with i got a thing with eyeballs for some reason and i don't do well watching horror <laughs> movies and i think the close uh, the brain scene in hannibal when he's feeding him his own brain and the turtle scene <laughs> in cannibal holocaust is the closest i actually almost threw up in the theater watching the hannibal thing where i was getting nauseous and my wife's like really like yeah when i saw it like that night i don't know if it was something i ate or what but i was like mm, <laughs> through it and <laughs> the turtle scene in Cannibal Holocaust got me where that turned my stomach and now like I just fast forward past it but the eyeball thing when she steps on it always for some reason just it's the only thing that gets me I don't have a problem with you've had a the guest that had a problem with all the drug usage and the needles and everything and I'm yeah. like laughing I'm like I don't have a fucking problem with that it's the eyeball <laughs> we just found that the Sean Wheeler is big in drug use no Tar- Church of Tarantino exclusive that'll lead us to song 10 on well song 10 because we can't say track 10 thanks to Pat Fournier's <laughs> Piece of shit. Fucking French. And it is about her from Malcolm McLaurin. Malcolm McLaurin was an English impresario, visual artist, musician, and fashion designer. He is best known for managing punk rock and new wave icons, the Sex Pistols, New York Dolls, Adam and the Ants, and Bow Wow Wow. He contributed this song that samples She's Not There by the Zombies and Bessie Smith's St. Louis Blues to the soundtrack. Now this song plays while the bride and BB watch Shogun Assassin together. And it continues as the bride returns to confront Bill downstairs. This is a great moment because we also get the dubbed version of Shogun Assassin while they're watching it. It's just a sweet little moment. It really does work. You know why? It's because it's their love theme. Yes. However, <laughs> it is. It's their love theme for the for their relationship. This is their if they if this was a, a normal score, it would be Bill and Beatrix love theme is what it would be called. So I know, but it's playing over her and her daughter. I know. Well, the, and it segues it, the whole family I know. thing. And, I know. Segues yeah. into them yeah. talking. It's a disarming moment in the film because at that moment, once we realize that BB's alive, and then you know her and Bill are kind of rekindling. We've got the whole sandwich making, and we've got the whole you want to watch a movie, all that stuff. There's a moment you think they might work this out. Like we might not kill yeah. Bill. Like you just when, sometimes you watch, you go, "There's a chance that this could go the opposite way." Like, even Bill isn't a hundred percent sure he wants to kill her i think that's why he gets liquored up at the end i think that's why he gets himself liquored up is, is because the only way he's going to be able to move forward with this is to do it because i think he saw what he didn't realize is the mothering instincts and he saw the potential of the family they could have had if he hadn't been a murdering fucking bastard yeah. who lost his fucking mind who again and well i'm sure we already got into this on the episode and if not we're gonna get into it real quick here and i said i think in the first episode of kill bill when we were uh, last month in june everyone's always ready to kill bill this dude thought his girlfriend his the love of his life was dead he mourned her he went through this this bitch dipped on him he wanted he had no idea she was pregnant he thought she was killed the only reason l driver got in is because she was the comfort girl i don't mean that mean spurging way but she saw an opening and took her seat at the table away from the bride bill was distraught he was looking to kill the people he thought killed 
killed her. He was not expecting to find yeah. her. And then when he realizes that she did that to him, true, she's pregnant and him shooting a pregnant woman and trying to kill her. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he definitely went, he did want to go over the line. But like he says, when you break the heart of a murdering bastard, there are going to be some fucking consequences. And those are them. Like, we are all uh, upset for the bride, but what the fuck? I mean, Bill went through some yep. shit. He went through some post-traumatic stress. He thought he lost the love of his life. He's looking to find her. Next thing he finds out, she's getting married. And he thinks she's pregnant with some of the dude's baby. So, of course, he's going to shoot her. Why the fuck would he care? By the time she says, Bill, it's your baby, it's too late. The trigger's been pulled. That's it. As they say, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It's not yeah, going back well, in. He, what does he send Elle to the hospital to do? Is it to kill her or just to check on her and see, you know, because he says, what's her current What's mm-hmm. her current state? I don't think that mm-hmm. he ever meant to do her any further harm with, because no. of the baby. And I think Elle did. Oh, Elle wants yeah. her picture because Elle knows if she ever comes back, Elle's gone. Yep. Elle has moved in to being the number yeah, one bitch. Part of I know. I'm, I apologize. I know that sounds awful. But that's what she, I mean, she, she did. She, she moved in. She wanted to be yeah. the person. And she I agree is. with you. Part of me believes that Bill was hoping that the benge- the vengeance had been filled. I mean, can't we just forget about the past? He says that to Bud, and I don't think he ever got a chance to say it to her. You know, it's just I, I totally agree with you on that. I think that he was hoping she was going to come down and just be like, hey, we need to talk. And, you know, got to <laughs> instantly she's looking right at the swords and shit because she doesn't know they can't trust each other. And that's half of what the song is about. There's lines in here, the, the way she lies, you know, he's truly, utterly incapable of, or she's, you know, of telling the truth for her. And there's a line in the song that it's too late to say you're sorry. How would I know or how would I care? I mean, it's, they're at mm-hmm. that point. And then the whole, my, my man's got a heart like a rock that's in the sea. I mean, mm-hmm. that's fucking Bill. For anyone that doesn't know, the song is a mashup of um, an old Bessie Smith song. And then the zombies, she's not there. So it's with Malcolm McLaurin kind of putting the two of them together in this mashup with these cool drums and stuff. And it's a really cool, mm-hmm. like really, really cool song that, that I don't know where Tarantino heard it. Cause it's never, I think it was on Malcolm's one of his albums. Cause he's like a punk legend. I didn't even know who the fuck he was. Yep. until I started diving into it for here and I was like, Oh, okay. But yeah, this song adds so much to that scene when she's coming, when she's walking down to go you know, to talk to him and everything. And then you get the Superman speech and all that stuff. Which <sighs> one of my is, favorites of all which of I, yeah, I was yes. reading. Um, Disappointed to make this soundtrack. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That of all the sound stuff that didn't make it. Is when the he Superman was writing speech. that, I read the, um, the Kill Bill diary that Carradine put out. And he was talking about how he's on the yeah. set and Quentin keeps coming to his room with, you know, these new, he's writing a Superman dialogue for him and everything. And it was really cool, you know, to kind of, because he he went like day by day through this diary that he wrote of working yeah. with all these people and stuff. And that was one of the things that I thought was really cool that I didn't know that Tarantino was writing that, you know. And it gets the point across so well. Oh, gorgeous. yeah. I just wish the song played a little bit longer in the movie, I think. <laughs> one of my favorite things, uh, two things that always make me think this way. Having been in the military, one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. And the best way to describe that is, if you're a Star Wars fan, there's this funny thing that people did way back in the early 2000s about the Death Star, where like people who work for the Empire, who are stormtroopers, had friends building the Death Star, working on the Death Star, and they were blown up and killed in a terrorist attack. It's alluded to by, in a couple, in two movies later, in Inglorious Bastards, when Hans Landa's standing there saying what some might consider a terrorist plot, when he's talking about them blowing up the theater full of people, it's all perspective. And the perspective of this film is we're seeing it through the bride eyes but we never take a moment to think about no. bill and what bill went through yeah look he's a murdering so bastard. They're all murdering bastards that's what i'm saying they're all murdering bastards and when you realize that her daughter's not that she just killed a lot of people for the wrong reason she killed him because she thought they were involved in the death of her daughter her daughter's not dead she killed a lot of people 
But because we're on her side to start the movie because we want her to win because we think our daughter's dead, we're like, kill all these motherfuckers. But once you realize that you're on the wrong side, yeah. you know, who's who's the real there's villain a lot of the film? Of, there's a lot of layers to these two movies that it, it takes. A lot of I mean, I've been watching film. it since the day they came out in theaters. And I'm still, like we just talked about on the last podcast about it, like the, the little looks and stuff where like I now believe that she was way better friends with Oren than, you know, just acquaintances. You know, the silly yep. tricks you know silly yeah, rabbit that's tricks. Right. there's yeah. that comment that's in there and it's like these mm-hmm. two knew each other they've said that shit before so i mean there's so many different layers to this film and that's what this last time i was watching it like it's just like oh god there's so much stuff going on here that i've never noticed before because I've, I've seen them so many times now i'm certain to, I've, in your podcast has helped i don't want to give you too big of a fucking head your headphones won't fit <laughs> but you know like it's helped me like look at these movies on a different level where like Jackie Brown, I think you and Ryan Rebelkin, is that his name? You guys yes. did that Jackie Brown. Like I watched it, I got done with that and I watched it right afterwards. And it was like watching it for the first time again, where I saw all this stuff, you know, that I'd never seen before. So thank you to you and Ryan for that. But the jump, like there's layers in Pulp Fiction, nothing like that. No, he gets, he gets much better with his subtext after Pulp yeah, Fiction. Yeah, there's so much going on. Like, and there's... But he it really makes you does. Just wonder, like, like, he did an amazing story design for Pulp Fiction, but after that, he really starts to dive yeah. into layering even more and more. And I mean, that's just and I mean, brilliant. he did take some time off for Death Proof, <laughs> and then he saved it all for fucking Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. Which there's so many layers to that that it's like even Django's got you know a bunch in it, and Hateful Eight is fucking yeah. like astronomical. And then you get to Once Upon a Time and. Hollywood, which I still don't think I fully unpacked everything that's going on in that movie. This will move us to track 11. And since I don't have to answer the question, Dan, this is my favorite song. It may be my favorite ending song he's put out. I don't know yet, but it's one of them. Meleguina Celerosa by Chingon, who happens to have Mr. Robert Rodriguez playing guitar on this. This song is a well-known song, Huestico song from Mexico, and it's been covered more than 200 times. The song is about a man telling a woman how beautiful she is, and how he would love to be her man, but that he knows she is rejecting him because he is poor. Chingon is made up of members of the group Del Castillo and director Robert Rodriguez. This amazingly beautiful song is the first song in the closing credits, and it plays over the cast credits of the film. And it works beautifully. Like so Hats off to the late, great Sally Menke, who put the end credits together. The editing to the beat, to the movements, to everything, it's just so fucking beautiful. The shots she selected. Oh, some would say that some of the things that hurt Tarantino's films lately and why they're a little bit longer is they don't have the firm, steady hand of, of Sally. Not that his new editor is, is bad. He's not. But Sally just, was just a cut Grace. above. Sally and him worked so she was well together. with her. With the stuff, yeah. that, it was like um the woman that works with uh, Scorsese, uh, Thelma Spoonmaker, is that her name? Yeah. Just there's like a flow to the movie, and Fred Raskin is good, but it's more he's good, but 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 he also I, I don't think he has the it's not as operatic. Maybe he's getting there, but he doesn't also have maybe the the relationship that Sally did with him. Like I, I think Tarantino of all people trusted Sally to cut his film, like new one to say, hey, we got to lose this part here, this, yeah. and he trusted He was Sally's um, assistant for a long time, is what I found out. But. Yes, he was. I mean, he's done a fine job, but again, Michael Jordan's got kids. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? I mean, hey, you know what? Uh, Anakin was no, hoping one. I just wanted to make sure so you listen, listeners know <laughs> that she, when she died, like some guy didn't just come walking in off the street. You know, like, yeah, oh, they, no, 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 no. Yeah. And he's a good editor. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying I don't think he has the <laughs> cachet with Tarantino to push back that I'm sure Sally yeah. did. Sally would be is definitely the one who told them this needs to go. This is the better shot. And we see the films. You trusted it. This one, this entire album is a fucking banger. Have you heard it? 
Mexican no, I haven't. Spaghetti but this Western. song every yeah, time. It, the, the album is called Mexican Spaghetti Western. It's very, very expensive to get it on vinyl. I've been, it's on my wish list forever, but um, did you know that this is a love song? Yes, I believe it's like a, a, a love song that's, he's still longing for this person. Yeah, he can't, the, one of the choruses, I can't offer you riches, but I can offer you my heart. Um, apparently the translation loses a lot of the passion of the song from when you go from Spanish to English. So I found a little tidbit about this. This song was used in a 1947 film called La Ena Porada. A rebel leader falls in love with the daughter of the richest man in town. She wants nothing to do with him because of his status. He comes to her balcony and serenades her with mariachis and this song to try to win her heart. She begins to see him in a different light. The girl's name in the film is Beatrice. So I just, I found that while I was kind of digging through, like, I don't just dig, like, I'll go and look at comments and stuff. And somebody was like, and then I went, I watched the whole movie and the movies, it's a 1947, you know, like, I don't understand Spanish, but I got to this part and it's really cool. And I think that's probably where I know that Rodriguez is huge in Spanish cinema and everything. And that's why his band covered it. And he plays this. I mean, you can go on YouTube. He plays this song at the rap party for Kill Bill Volume 2. I love this song. It's, it's such a like mix of like i mean there's heavy metal in it there's mariachi music yes yes singing, yes and then and it goes from slow to like really upbeat and heart you can feel the heart yeah, and he, i think he does so a thing where good. like he talks about the guy's got to hold that note for a long long time in it and then yes and i i had sent you a while ago the band the rock band or avenge sevenfold did a cover of this almost note for note yeah, I really? sent it to you a bit ago. It's, they did it like two, the album, The Stage, that they did had a special disc of like covers that they did where they did um, a Beach Boys cover and Mr. Bungle cover. And then they did this song and he learned, I don't know if he knows Spanish or learned it for the song, but it's almost note for note exactly like this, but it's Avenged Sevenfold. It's a really good cover. So this may be one of at least top three favorite songs in the Tarantino verse. Yeah. This song. I absolutely love it. It's gorgeous. That'll bring us to the last song on this album and the last song on all the soundtracks. And that is Urami Bushi by Miku Kaji. This song is the theme song for the 1972 Japanese woman in prison film, Female Prisoner Number 701, Scorpion, which stars Miko Kaji. Miko is a Japanese actress and singer, best known for her leading role in Lady Snowblood. She has also sung the theme song to three other Japanese films, including Lady Snowblood. Those of you who don't know who Miko Kaji is, if you listen to our very first Under the Influence for Kill Volume 1, she was the lead actress in Lady Snowblood, which, of course, was a big inspiration on both of these films. This is the third song, as we said, playing over the closing credits in this film, and it also is the last song playing over the closing credits of Volume 1. However, it did not make it onto that film soundtrack. And now Mr. Wheeler, I know, has looked up some information on this, and he's about to give you more than I gave you just a second ago. I found that it means grudge song and that it's from a movie called Female Prisoner 701 Scorpion in 1972. And it was the theme song for the follow-up movies in 1973 because they did a part two and part three like back to back. Which Miko then in 1973 was also, that's when Lady Snowball yeah, which comes I out still, and she sings the title I track. I finally got to, I watched like the first half of that, half an hour of that today and it's amazing so far. So yes. I just need to finish mm-hmm. it. Um, it's on HBO Max right now. For free. Yes, it is. Oh, it's Max now. Max. Apologize, folks. It's Sorry. Max. Yes, they dropped the yeah, Here comes the... And uh, it's for free. It's the Criterion one. However, as I said on the other episode, Under the Influence for Kill Bill Volume 1, number 6, Lady Snowblood 2, you can skip. It's 
It's not good. It, Lady Snowball is all you need to see. Save me. Watch Lady Snowball to see if I'm wrong, but I'm telling you right now, you're going to be very disappointed with Lady Snowball number two. You will enjoy, though, Lady Snowball. It's a fucking yeah. classic. It's amazing. Especially if you're a fan of Kill Bill. If you have to see that film, yep. you just have to, and you, you'll get it all. I just sat through the Lone Wolf and Cub. Have you seen those? It's I have been yeah, watching those. Those are yes. amazing as well. Um, and there are huge yes. influences on these. Well, Shogun Assassin yeah. is, I think, it's one, it's one of the two put together. It, but they don't put it out together. together. Yeah, so I, I can't find that version. I wanted to see the version because, obviously, it's from this movie, so I want to see the Shogun Assassin version that they watch so I can get the same. If you get the Criterion box set of Lone Wolf and Cub, I believe that the Shogun Assassin is one of the special features on it where you can watch the movie that way. That's like a hundred bucks. Wait till it goes on sale. <laughs> All right. That will bring us to what's left. And that is there are four more tracks, technically three and a hidden. One hidden track is at the end of Urami Bushi. Black Mamba from the Riza is like almost five to ten minutes down. Like it's a way hidden track. It does not make it into the movie, but I think it was a song that he put together and was going to try to get it into volume one. Never happened. And so Tarantino was like, look, dude, here you go. Put this as a hidden track. Boom, makes it. There are three dialogue moments. A few words from the bride is the first that opens up the soundtrack, and that is obviously the exact speech she makes at the beginning of the movie where she talks about her roaring rampage and all the other shit that I'm not a big fan of, but I understand why they had to do it. Maybe the best on here is then the legend of Pi May that good old Bill tells B. And then truly and utterly Bill, which is interesting because it's the opening of him talking to B right before he shoots her in the knee with the truth Sam. So of the three tracks, I already know I'm going to ask you which one's your favorite but of the three there's a few i would have put on here instead uh i would have gone through the entire true serum thing or the sandwich learning about death from bill's speech is there the superman one's the best one how that doesn't make it on is is quite uh astonishing even like mr viejo's talk about how you know yeah. bill learned to suck us like there are so many great the little moments speech. that the gargantuan one have been fantastic or even Bud, the, that little lady you know the thing where he ended the first film with it the gargantuan one would have been great because you hear flip the book open and everything but yeah what about it's calendar time it's calendar time for <laughs> my favorite scene in the movie <laughs> my that favorite fucking oh, hat. god <laughs> that fucking that fucking hat fucking that shit kicker hat. hat i'm not the boss of the customers i'm gonna boss you <laughs> i fucking love that guy just on that scene oh i fucking i would have been great like there's a lot of great moments that could have been on this soundtrack that weren't whatever i'm not in charge of it maybe it was a time crunch because like i said this i think was suddenly like hey guess what we're cutting into two movies and now we got to re-edit this for one and this for two and we don't have a whole lot of time to fancy it up so but of those three tracks what was your favorite of the dialogue tracks um Actually, I don't like any of them. I, I hate when they throw the stuff in there. So, yeah. How can you not like at least a legend the legend of Pyme? The Pyme one is probably my How? favorite one, but I wish they would not put them on the soundtracks anymore. Really? Especially oh, when God. like I'm at work and I have a playlist on and it includes the Django Unchained and then Steven comes in, you know, yelling the N-word in the middle of the song. You know, like shit like that. Because <laughs> Or... um. There's some deleted stuff that's on Django Unchained that you're going to eventually get to here that it's like Don Johnson mm -hmm. lines that aren't in the movie that he says in, in the soundtrack as part of the dialogue stuff. And it's well, it's like in the last volume we talked about, they had the sound effects. Yeah, I don't mind that. The, but I know, I know. But, but, but you know, but it's a similar thing. Like it, it does slow so down the whole there's, point. There's the a couple songs that should have been fucking included in this and they're not because the dialogue stuff is. Well, there are 14 yeah. tracks that do not appear on this and they're, they're significant ones. However, one of them that I'm glad doesn't is the Bang Bang uh, original song by Shunning Share. What songs would you like to see put in? And what would they replace? 
if you could. I would get rid of the two Mira and put in the demise of Barbara and the return of Joe from Navajo Joe. Um, it's the music hmm. as Bill dies. That track is like a summary of everything that's cool about the spaghetti westerns. It's in the top, my top five right now with the ecstasy of gold. It, it adds so much emotion to that scene as he walks off and everything. And you think about the realization of what you know she did to him, and then she literally rips his heart out at the end, makes his heart explode or whatever yeah. the fuck is going on there with all the subtext of what happens to Bill. But <laughs> yeah, let's ask our guest some fucking questions all right let's wrap this bad boy up for you what is your favorite track on this soundtrack uh shing on yeah 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 mine too yeah it's a cool fucking song and i can't turn it off if it comes on like it's getting played all the way through and i don't give a shit if people don't like it because it's metaled up mariachi music is basically (laughs) on my yeah yeah so the skill that that dude has to be that skilled and talented in so many different areas is not fair is all I have to oh, say about yes. Robert Rodriguez because he's playing guitar with the skill of a fucking Stevie Ray Vaughan. Your second question: What is your least favorite track on this soundtrack? Uh the two Mira. I skip it every time it comes on, and I've even taken it off my playlist because I cannot stand the song. Really, I get it. It stays too long. Yeah, like it works so well in the beginning. Even when they do like the, it's like the uh, the organ comes in, and then like the little it sounds like a kid's chorus, and then it's like that you know little clapping. But then it goes back to it, and you're like, it's just it kind of gets repetitive, so it does get a little it's bit. It's almost playful, and she's going to see like a murderous pimp. So it's just it, it always it doesn't even I don't even really like it the way it's used in the film. So what is the most underrated track? On this soundtrack, in your opinion, all of the Rodriguez stuff that doesn't make it to the soundtrack, unfortunately. I know. Well, um, the man doesn't get enough credit for his scoring abilities because if you listen to Sin City, like it, it, one of the best parts of that movie is the score. As far as the stuff that's on the actual soundtrack, I'm gonna say the Malcolm McLaren about her. Yeah, the song is just I love it. It's a beautiful song. I normally don't listen to music like that, so for me to say it, it's you know, especially this last time where I kind of connected where the song. It's almost like it was written and mixed for the Beatrix and Bill character as she's going into her mindset of spending that time with her daughter, knowing she's got to go down and talk to this son of a bitch. And like you brought up, you know, like now you watch it and it's like, well, shit, man, she's done just as much bad shit as he has. So, you know, like this kid should have hooves, but it probably, you know, (laughs) at this point should be the (laughs) devil incarnate. (laughs) But, you know, and the kids playing with guns and stepping on fish and shit. And like, you know, you add all that into this with this song. That's a segue from her spending that first moments alone with her daughter into what could be her last breaths. It's just it's such a beautiful song. And it it, it adds so much to that scene. And finally, where does this soundtrack rank for you? in all of his soundtracks. So I consider Kill Bill to be one movie. So um, Kill Bill 1 and 2 together is my favorite of all of his with Django and Death Proof. Death Proof has some songs I don't like on it, but there there's a, so much that I do like that, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. up there. It's a solid one. But Django, there's something special about it for some reason, like all the pieces and everything. And my lowest one, though, is Hollywood. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't connect with if those. If I were to split them into two, I would put this as my really? lowest one. If I split them into yeah. two, not as a whole, because this is much weaker than volume one by a landslide. There, there's some really kick-ass shit in here. There's some really good songs. Don't get me wrong. Like one of my favorite songs yeah. ever from it is our, your number one choice is mine. But that being said, it's a very weak because, you know, of stuff that we talked about earlier about what songs we think we should have put on. This would make it as it's on its own as a volume two. It would make it as my least favorite.
And that will do it for this month's Himmler Devotional. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sean Wheeler, owner of Scareflare Records and co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast for joining me again. Now you can find the link to all of Sean's endeavors along with their socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you would be so kind to take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourselves find the show. So join me again in two weeks as Ryan Atkin, the other co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast, joins me to help me take a look at two of the films that helped inspire one of Tarantino's most underappreciated films, Death Proof. Those films being Vanishing Point and Bird with the Crystal Plumage. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. Motherfucker. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.